Are you a late bloomer? Uh, my husband says I should be very annoyed at that question because he says I've been marvellous all along. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think I'm a late bloomer if uh, in the blooming bit, which is that I'm now doing something that makes me really unconditionally happy. Mm -hmm. Whereas before I did a lot of stuff that was sometimes important and sometimes well paid, but I never enjoyed it half as much as what I'm doing now. So. So let's start with just briefly, what are you doing that makes you really happy now? I have a contract to write a book that a proper publishing house says they're going to publish. So I'm writing a biography, a, a double biography called The Brothers of Daniel and Alexander Macmillan, who founded Macmillan Publishing mm -hmm. uh, 180 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's taken me a while, but I've got an agent and I've got a publishing contract and I need to submit a manuscript in the next eight months and it will come out in 2024, all being well. And, and that's, that's making me very happy. Good. And that's the grandfather or great grandfather of the prime minister. Uh, Daniel is the grandfather of the prime minister. Yeah. And, okay. and Alexander, who's the one who really built the business after Daniel died, is his great uncle. So an interesting family for more than just their business yes. interests. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, uh, fantastic achievers themselves, because Daniel and Alexander were born into absolute poverty on the west coast of Scotland. Their father was a, a carter um, uh, who died when they were young boys. Uh, Daniel left school at 10, Alexander when he was 15. And by the mid 1860s, Alexander is one of the literary hosts of London. And within two generations, they have a an offspring who will be prime minister and married into the Duke of Devonshire's family. I mean, it's quite a climb. So we're talking about this is really the Victorian self-made man. Absolutely. Samuel Smiles and all his glory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 We love Samuel Smiles. So yeah. where does your interest in that type of subject or person come from? Well, there's a basic love of of all my period of all the periods of history and all the periods of literature. Victorian times would be absolutely bang on. It's what I know most about. I'm very comfortable working in that time, and I love the books and the poetry from that time. Um, the The way I found it was very serendipitous, which was that my husband collects art and had found a lot of art by a vic very unknown Victorian woman painter, mm -hmm. and I researched her life. And the more I researched it, the more I thought I need to write this down. And it turned into a book that no one would publish. But people said to me, write about someone we've heard of and come back to us. And that's that's a really hard question because almost everyone you've heard of has got a book. I mean, that's <laughs> why that's why you've heard of them. Um, but I had a stroke of luck, which was literally in the research on the book about the, the artist is called Nellie Erickson. And in my research on her, she was a neighbour of the Macmillan family in South London in the 1870s and related by marriage, sort of in a, in a hop and a skip to the Macmillan family. So she knew the Macmillans, she stayed with the Macmillans. And I researched the Macmillan family to write about Nellie and there wasn't a book. There hadn't been a book since, the 19, since 1940. So there was an opening to do a book because most people have heard of Macmillan Publishing. Most people would think it was interesting to understand how that had been started, and no one has written about it for 80 years. So that was, that was the stroke of luck, I think. So it comes from a kind of a long-term immersion in the period and a very indirect discovery of the subject matter. 
does. It does. I mean, I have been talking about Nellie Erickson and her bit of tooting where she lived and the people that she knew for, um, gosh, nearly 20 years now. So, I mean, yeah. it is a long immersion, but it took me a very long time to have the confidence to, to show anyone what I was writing about it. Yeah. And that if we go back 20 years, is that where is that where you start sort of reading and working on this? Or, or had you yes. been reading about the Victorians from earlier? Um, I think that, I mean, I did PPE at Oxford, but my favourite paper in finals was Victorian social political history. Mm. So the 1860s is bang on the period. I think all the time I was I was working and having a career, I was reading my way through Trollope and Dickens and George Eliot, so, um, and Tennyson. Um, so that in that way, and it's the sort of art that I like. So it is definitely my my spot, but I had never thought about researching online, finding out about anyone and writing it down until, yeah, 15 years ago, I started when, doing that. When you started doing that, you'd actually had years of, of reading the novels, being immersed yeah. in the period, it goes back. You were ready, you know, you weren't yes. just coming to this out of nowhere. I wasn't, I wasn't. Yeah. And, um, and it does remind me that about, well, it was at the time when um, my children were babies, I wanted to give up work and study Victorian literature. I mean, I, I felt then that it was something I wanted to do. And I had an idea of, right, uh, the book that inspired me was um, Trollope's The Way We Live Now. Fantastic and I was fascinated, book. yeah, fascinated by the Melmot character. And I wanted to do an MA or something that would allow me to write, to use the knowledge I had of the city today against what was Trollope writing about. I thought mm. that was would be interesting. So I had thought about it, 25 years ago and had absolutely no encouragement from anyone to do anything about it so I didn't I kept kept working um but but it's funny that that's almost where I've ended back up which is looking at Victorian yeah. entrepreneurs yeah it's like um it's a deep vein that runs through your life and now it's come to the surface yeah it is it yeah. is it's absolutely so you've hinted at you did PPE you were in the city T tell us because you're you were already blooming before you're not a late bloomer you're a repeat bloomer Tell us what was happening when you weren't being a Victorian yeah. writer. So I went from Oxford into the city, into a corporate finance house that was part of NatWest Bank. So we're called NatWest Markets. And I did corporate finance. Um, so flotations, mergers, takeovers, um, raising money um, from 1983 right the way through to 1990s. In the 1990s, I left London and moved up to Yorkshire, but I kept working. And at that point I had small children. So I was working three or four days a week and working in Leeds doing corporate finance. Mm -hmm. And then there was a big excitement in 1998 because I left NatWest and took my team into Arthur Anderson, which at the time caused a bit of a fuss and a bit of a stir. Um, and I had three or four, oh, four years at Arthur Anderson and then Arthur Anderson went into liquidation. Yes. Um, and at that point, I'd been doing corporate finance for nearly 20 years and I'd had enough of it. And there were a lot of young and unpleasant young men coming up <laughs> who, didn't <think laughs> them, who didn't think that women in their 40s with children should be um, stopping them doing what they wanted to do. So I did headhunting for a little while and yep. then I started becoming a non-executive director. So I became plural and I'm still plural. I still do trustee jobs, audit mm -hmm. jobs, non-executive director jobs. So you... Yeah. In, in sort of three different ways, 
at Arthur Anderson, and then as a headhunter, and then as a non-exec. You've actually been um, a senior person. You've been running an area of a business. You've had that kind of yeah. oversight. Does this help you? You know, you've got the background reading Trollope and understanding the character of Melmot, but you've also got the background as, you know, actually a business person. So when you look yeah. at someone like Macmillan, Yes. If you hadn't can, done I, that career, you would have had less insight. Do you, do, do I you think sort of that's mean? right. I yeah. think that's right. I, I mean, I spent some time in the archives just the other week looking at the partnership deeds from when he set the business mm -hmm. up. I've looked at um, there had to be a court case in Chancery when Daniel's widow died because she died in test state. And uh, there was a risk that the partnership would have to be dissolved and split around his children. So, I mean, to me, that makes sense. Um, the big risks that he takes, like moving from Cambridge to London. And then at the moment, I'm really interested in him opening an office in New York, which he did in 1869. I mean, to me, that is about a business risk. Mm. Um, and then there's little small bits. So at the time when I was running an office in Leeds, I was very conscious of how um, uh, vulnerable you feel when you are not in the head office, when you are running a, a satellite. Yeah. And I've been reading this week, the letters coming back from New York to London from the poor chap that Alexander sent out to New York. <laughs> and I can, I mean, I could have written those letters, you know, just tell me what's going on. What are your plans? What do you mean your son's coming to work here? Is that all right? You know, is that a good sign? And um, so that to me is business as well. So yes. I do recognize a lot of it. Yes, that's a timeless it. problem, in, especially in big business today, right? Global businesses. Yeah, it is. It is. How do you make everyone feel equally important and how do you manage something that's the other side of the ocean? You know. So your book will be interesting, not just from a sort of literary and social history perspective, but for people in business or people trying to understand how to so. be a manager. I hope so. I hope so. Um, I mean, Alexander did an enormous amount all on his own. But as I move on, he's going to start running a more complex business. Um, and I haven't really got into that yet. He's got one partner and he's just set up to send someone to New York. But it will become more interesting. And then how he's going to bring the sons and nephews into the business is going to be fascinating because they didn't all want to come mm. in at the same time. And he's got to manage that as well. So it is a business book. So he's a sort of he's a great publisher with an eye for a book. Yes. He's a great businessman who can who can, you know, cut deals and, and manage yes. money. And he's also an Im important as a people manager. He is. He is. And I and seems to manage that well. I mean, other firms are not nearly as successful as Macmillan, you know, appoint the wrong people. He never really gets anything. The big calls, he doesn't get them wrong. He never has a big failure. You know, if he launches a magazine, he goes on supporting it, it survives. If he launches an office in New York, I mean, it become Macmillan New York becomes bigger than Macmillan England. I mean, he he doesn't make bad calls. He is a good manager. And where does that come from? Because he grew up, he did, he, you know, he did not grow up around business people. Where does he that come from? He certainly didn't. He certainly didn't. I don't know. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, I think he was much more entrepreneurial than his brother was. The business really takes off when Daniel dies. Daniel was driven by... Um, a, a Christian missionary spirit. I mean, he was driven by Christian socialism. He wanted to bring good quality and religious literature to the masses and the working man. And he saw it as he wasn't well enough to go to India. So this was his mission. Um, Alexander goes along with that and is, is fascinated by the Christian socialist side, but he's also wants to make money. 
And I think some of it might just be, you know, he wakes up one day in, in 1857 and suddenly he's responsible for eight children, his wife and a widow, you know, people who work for him. He really has to grip it or he'll sink and he grips it. But, but how and why, apart from sheer bravery, I don't know how he got how he got to do that. He didn't have any models. He wasn't being mentored by anyone else in the industry. They all saw him as a Scottish upstart. So there's one guy he talks to who's a publisher in Edinburgh called Maclehose, but he becomes much more successful than Maclehose. Was he a late bloomer? Alexander. So when Daniel dies, um, he how old is he? He's nearly 40. He's nearly 40. And up until then, yes, he's been the second fiddle in the business. He's had a ton of energy. I mean, if you researching, he's living in Cambridge and running the shop in Cambridge. But he's also uh, he's on the board of the working men's college that they establish. He's doing stuff with the YMCA in Cambridge. He's a parish overseer. I mean, he has a ton of energy. And he talks about, you know, he was up reading proofs till two in the morning and he was up again at six to get a train to London. I mean, I, his wife must have been pulling her hair out. I would think. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was a man of phenomenal energy and not good health. He suffered badly from sciatica and various other problems. I mean, he was sometimes prostrated with pain, but he never gave up. He's okay. quite a hero. Yeah, he is. He sounds really interesting. I'm, I'm mm. really looking forward to this book. Um. Yeah. So I want to go back over your, we've had the sort of summary of your life. I want to get into some details because it's really, really interesting how you, you kept to yourself those interests and ambitions for so long. Mm. And obviously lots of people do that, right? Lots of people leave university and they've got a thing that they really, you know, they're passionate about, but they sort of, you know, they end up as an accountant or whatever. Yeah. And it just sort of slowly dies or they realize they're not quite as interested as all that or life gets in the way or they have kids. Why didn't it go away for you? Because when you're senior well, at Arthur Anderson, you, you're pretty busy, right? Yeah. I, and I don't think if you'd said to me, if you'd said to me when I was a senior at Arthur Anderson, um, are you, would you still like to write a book? I just said, don't, don't be daft. Of course not. But, <laughs> I, but, but my huge frustration with Anderson and I, and I had some, mentoring at the time from a from a coach who said to me you, the problem you have is that you you are a person who needs choice and the more involved in one particular job you get the more you push get pushed down a tunnel the less happy you will be Sarah because you like to wake up every morning and think I'm going to do something different today what am I going to do today you know what am I going to do today and that's the life I now have and it's the life I've had since the day I walked out of Arthur Anderson in 2002 which is every day I've done something a bit different mm -hmm. um uh, and the lucky break that happened to me was the collapse of Anderson could have been a disaster, but actually it gave me a, a, a lump sum and it gave me freedom um, to explore and um, bend my career to suit my children and my circumstances. Um, and it gave me time to discover the things I liked doing. Do you think, so one thing that separates a lot of late bloomers from early bloomers although as discussed, you were an early bloomer, um, but it's that early bloomers often have a mentor or they belong to a small group of their peers. So they have people that they can, you know, experiment with and have ideas with, or they have someone saying, don't be an idiot. You need to do this. 
Why haven't mm. you written to that person or yeah, whatever? Yeah. And late bloomers yeah. often just, you know, don't have this. But I've no. got a little theory that um, it probably wouldn't have made any difference. And that, you know, in a way, you're a, I mean, tell me if this is right. You're quite a divergent person. Yeah. But you were in a very narrow life. I and was. It, I was. And the only I mentorship was. that you required was for someone to say, as they said to you, you're in the wrong game here. Yes. <laughs> And you needed to take your own time. You needed to take your own path. You, you know, there's something innate about or just in your personality that means you were never going to write a book when you were 25. No. Um, and the other experiences you gathered along the way were part of that divergence. What do you think of that as a sort of model of you and of other late bloomers? I certainly think that there was no way when I was in my 20s and 30s, um, anyone that I knew, socialised with or worked with, would have had any interest at all in what interested me. I mean, none of them read, none of them went to the theatre like I went to the theatre, none of them had the interest in film that I had. So, and at the time I was um, married into the medical profession and they absolutely weren't. So, I mean, at business, <laughs> business they weren't interested, medics aren't interested or don't have time to be fair to them. Um, so it had to be just in my head. Um, and what I read and what I started listening to once you started getting audiobooks and I had time. So definitely there was no one around in my 20s who would have given me any encouragement to do anything different. And I was sucked into a job that was very high, very exciting, very high pressure and very rewarding. Um, and then I had children, which, you know, really upped the confusion of life. Um, and it, it, I was just lucky that at the age of 40, I you know, I was relaxed and and comfortable enough to be able to start spending my time with people who were encouraging. How unusual do you think it is to have, you know, you do PPE, you work in corporate finance, but you've also got this strong interest in literature and the arts. And you, as you say, like, you don't... Really unusual. I can think of all the people I worked with right through Nat West and at Anderson, I can remember the one guy who, if you went on a business trip with him, would open his briefcase and get out a book. He was a wonderful man. He was called Simon Metcalf and he carried poetry around his briefcase. I remember him. He is the only one. I mean, no one else did. They read the they read the FT. They talked about business. There was a lot of heavy drinking. You know, it, it, it just, it wasn't part of the culture at all. Um, and, you know, I didn't live with anyone who read like I read either. So it was, it was completely me on my own, plowing my own little furrow. And where does nope. where does this joint interest come from? Is that parents, school, Oxford? Is it something you just always remember? I think I think from my parents, and I think um, particularly from my mother, who had um, came from very very poor background, um, left school as fast as she could when war broke out and got a job at the age of sixteen, and then after she married, her, my dad became a more senior civil servant. My mum discovered she needed and wanted to educate herself. So when I was growing up, my mother was doing WEA classes and talking to me because I was the, by far the youngest child. So I was more or less at home on my own with her. She would talk to me about an essay she had to write on Jane Austen or she was reading T.S. Eliot. And that, you know, she would talk to me about it all the time. So that was very encouraging. Um, and she knew poetry. Um, and that's I've passed on to my children who are, are all interested in literature in their way. I mean, that background of you need to, you know, the stories, you know, every Jane Austen, you know, your Dickens, you know, your poems. That comes from my mum and my dad as well. So, um, yeah. Sounds like your mum was a bit of a late bloomer. Oh, I think 
I think she was a frustrated, never bloomed because she was that generation mm. of just they stayed at home and it didn't do her any good at all. She was quite an unhappy woman. Did you do you have her in mind as a sort of model of, you know, she went back and, and started doing that education and did, yeah. was that something that was just with you? I think it probably was. I think it made sense to me that I could do an MA when I was 55 because my mother would have thought that was a sensible thing to do. If I had the time and the money and the why wouldn't I do it? So, yeah, it seemed seemed perfectly sensible to me. I didn't think it was odd. Um my husband had done one as well, and he had um, he was a, he was um, had never had any education at all, and did an MA um, ten years ago. So oh, great, yeah, yeah, How? University of Buckingham. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how did you end up at Oxford? Oh, um, I came from a tiny grammar school in Dorset that sent one girl to Oxbridge or Cambridge about every three or four years, so it felt like quite a lonely process. Mm. Um, and I had massive imposter syndrome. I mean, I didn't get into the college I applied to, but there's a college in Oxford called Mansfield that used to just collect all the best people that didn't get into any of the other colleges. We were all there with chips on our shoulders because we hadn't got into St. John's or Bailey or <laughs> any of the others. Um, and it was an incredibly good atmosphere. Yeah. But it's still, I mean, there were two two issues. One was, you know. Oxford was still dominated by the public schools and I was a grammar school girl. Yeah. Um, and Oxford was dominated by the big, confident academic colleges. And I was at the college no one had heard of. So, you know, spinning out of that and into the city just felt like that was a bit of a weird stroke of luck, because even though I was at Oxford doing PPE, and you know, I didn't feel like I was I didn't feel like I had. I, it would never have occurred to me to become academic when I left university. I wasn't going to get a first. I wasn't going to do that. But did this thing about imposter syndrome and 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 sort of being in a marginal position is that quite good? Because it 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 does encourage you to sort of keep seeing yourself as divergent, keep seeing yourself as not quite in the right place. It preserves that energy of of well, I'm here, but I'm not going to stay here. Whereas if you'd got into the right college and been more accepted, maybe you would have just a bit more easily slipped into a, you know, staying on the track, if you like. Maybe, maybe. But but I don't feel that I was a very assertive um, person when I started work. Mm. I mean, to me, um, working my way up through the city, I would contrast myself with mostly men who were working around me, all of whom had a timetable. You know, I've got to be an assistant director by this age. I'm going to be a director by this age. Then I'm going to go out and join a real company and I'm going to make money. And yeah. I was just wanted to keep my job and keep doing <laughs> it and not get in any trouble. But but then what used to happen is I would I would get to know someone at my level. And I think, well, I, you know, are the clever people in the next room? Because he's he's not he's not very bright. And then, well, why is he going to get promoted and not me? Because I think I'm better. So I think there was um there's a bit of that chippiness or edginess which makes you, uh, which can make you push on a bit harder. But it certainly didn't drive me. I mean, I was always a bit surprised to be honest. I was always a bit surprised when I got promoted. I was a bit surprised when Anderson hired me. I was very surprised when that got in the papers. You know, I mean, it was always a bit of a surprise to me. So I didn't have much confidence. As you talk about your background, it, it sounds a bit like there are parallels between you and Macmillan. You don't come from an no. Arthur Anderson background, but no. there you are and you become very successful. 
just yeah. like he didn't come from that. Is that part of what interests him to you? Like, are you writing you about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but I think I absolutely am sensitive. So I feel for him when I, I know how much he did for certain Victorian writers and I go to their memoirs and diaries and letters and he hardly gets a mention. Mm. You know, he's, and I know because I can see all the letters he wrote to them where he said, you've got to change the title. You've got to take out half that book. Why don't you write about this instead? I mean, I can see what he was giving to them. And then you go to the index of some of their books and he gets a, you know, a one line or, you know, it mentions that it, this something I wrote was in Macmillan's magazine. I am very sensitive to Alexander's feeling that people took him for granted, didn't give him any due uh, reward. And I suspect he... Yeah, I suspect I do imagine that he felt some of the stuff that I felt, which is, mm. um, have I got any right to be in this room? And actually, now I've met them, they're not as bright as I thought they were going to be, you know. And you, you can see his confidence grows in the 60s. It, it, he definitely becomes a lot more assertive with his authors during the 60s. Oh, really? The more he yeah, the more he spends time with them, the firmer he gets about, I'm not publishing that, this isn't good enough. You know, he takes on Lady Caroline Norton, you know, and that's quite a brave thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he wins, although it's very hard to tell. Who knows? But yeah. I always have a slightly, um, I mean, not very well informed view, but a view that um, there was less editing of novels in the 19th century and that, you know, Thomas Hardy dropped off his manuscript and they printed it. And that was that. You seem to be you seem to have found a lot of material that suggests that the authors wouldn't talk about it, but that their their work was yeah. edited quite heavily. I think their work was edited quite heavily. Yeah, um, yeah. and I mean, particularly. So the con the con the complication is the ones who were submitting um, for something for serialization in a magazine. Yeah. I think they were just so relieved to get it each month, you know, <laughs> and another month it turned up because you know that they were writing up into the deadline. Yeah. So that that didn't get edited, but then. Sometimes you can see Macmillan saying, when we turn this into a book, we're going to do something different with it. That definitely happens. Mm. He does it to Charles Kingsley. Water Babies, when, a, when it comes out as a book, has been edited from what appeared in the magazine. And um, what's the other? I, Mrs. Oliphant um, published a serial in the magazine and it, he definitely got her to change it before it went into the book. So okay. he did have an influence on these people. You wouldn't get that from either of their biographies no. or autobiographies. No. So this sort of feeling that you've described as almost a chip on the shoulder feeling. This I think this is potentially an advantage because when you when I look at some of the scientific research on on late bloomers, um, one thing you notice is. say, take scientists, for example, a lot of scientists make their breakthrough when they're young. Yeah. But when, when people have researched this and said, why is that? It's because a lot of scientists stop working once they get tenure or once they win a prize or whatever. The scientists who do carry on working keep making breakthroughs. <laughs> so it's actually not because there's anything special about being young. It's because that's when people are really trying. Yeah. If you don't ever settle into, you know, the people you met who are on a timetable, I'm going to be a director at this age, they get there and they settle in and, you know, great they can cruise through for a bit yeah but if you never settle into that or you retain the chip or you retain the sort of feeling of oh god oh god should yes. i really be here 
that's actually quite good because it keeps you energetic and it keeps you looking yeah. and it keeps you thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Do you think there's a kind of, I don't know, was that part of your success and Alexander's success that it, it you never settled for what you yeah. had? I think that's right. And there's something else I would see a parallel, which is um, I was not the greatest corporate financier in terms of my grasp of numbers and I'm hopeless at negotiation. But what I was doing, which most of my, um, colleagues weren't is I'm I can market and sell um, I, I'm interested in people and I used to go and win business I used to bring it back and then other people would transact it but that's mm. certainly what I did in Yorkshire I was out all the time meeting people because I was interested and I want to know what they did and what they did and how does that business work so I was always out looking and I never wanted to just sit at my desk and shout at people and run the numbers again I mean I wasn't very good at any of that but I think I can see that in Alexander too I mean, Alexander recruits a partner in the mid 1860s to take the back end off him because he just wants to be out meeting new authors. And, and that's what he's going to be good at. And George Lilly Craig is going to run the numbers and have the fights with the printers and and talk to America. You know, so I, ca I can see that. And I think that is you, you're not that interested in the day job. You're interested in the next idea and the next interesting thing that's going to grab your attention. And because you're interested other people bond with you and hey you've you know you've made a sale whereas there I used to talk to, I used to talk to client, potential clients who would say it's really good that you've come out because you sound like you're genuinely interested in this business mm. whereas the other three guys were just wondering what fee they could get out of me yeah. you know that's why I <laughs> that's why I would win business because I was interested in them yeah. as people and I made friends and I asked interesting questions um, and I wasn't just there kicking the tires and hoping I could sign someone up, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's the novel reader in you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There will be lots of women in their 30s in, you know, city jobs or office jobs or, or accountancy jobs or whatever, who, you know, feel the way you felt. Either they've got imposter syndrome or they secretly would rather just be reading Trollope or... Yeah whatever yeah what's what's your advice to them difficult to give advice in general terms but you know yeah my advice is you will the thing you will do best is the thing that makes you happiest so if you go on trying to push yourself into being something that you see other people being and it's not really making you happy you won't be very successful at it anyway so it is worth it is worth taking a risk and thinking, is there something out there I could do, which I, you know, owning a flower shop or, you know, whatever mm, that mm. would make me happier. It, it, you know, if I'd stayed on in corporate finance, if I'd gone into private equity, I could have made millions and millions, but I don't think I'd have been any happier. In fact, I think I'd have been a lot less happy than I am sitting here on a tiny little book advance doing exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> You know, I don't regret any of that because I wouldn't have enjoyed it. I wouldn't have liked doing it. Um, I, I mean, the other thing is, um, the other thing I would say to all women who were in my position is don't beat yourself up all the time that you're not being the perfect mother or the perfect executive because you're going to live with that guilt forever and you're never going to know what you could have done better if you'd given up maybe you'd have been a terrible mother at home if you'd farmed the children out or never had them maybe your career wouldn't have taken off you're never going to know so don't beat yourself up about it just do the best you can and cut corners wherever you can 
you know, and get help and don't be afraid to say, I need help with this and I can't, you know, I can't come tonight because I've got to go to a parents' evening. Just, you know, it, it, the more women say that we need help with this and don't try and pretend that it's easy. It's not easy. It's never going to be easy to do both. I found it very hard. So you are now navigating the publishing world. I am. Doing book research, being a writer. Yes. What things did you learn from your earlier career in all its guises, whether it's like small techniques and skills or sort of big life lessons or whatever, but what things did you learn from that earlier career that that you're sort of using now? I certainly learned, I mean, I certainly picked up a lot of small skills along the way. I mean, I am a very fast reader. I'm a summariser. Um, and I mean, a lot of my job in corporate finance was writing good, crisp prose because you mm. wrote prospectuses, you wrote, you know. So I think all of that has helped. I, th I think I'm a better writer and a better researcher because I did it professionally for 20 years, but we called it corporate finance. I mean, there was sure. a lot of a lot of crossover. Uh, in terms of the the bigger stuff, what have I learned? I've learned. To, I mean, I've learned to cope with with worry and stress. I mean if you wake up in the middle of the night and stuff's going around in your head get up have a cup of tea and write it all down don't lie in bed worrying that you're not gone back to sleep you know you just have to learn to cope with stress um and I think the other thing I've learned and I try and get into my children's head all the time is to be more assertive you know just not to run away and hide um if you think something's wrong or you're not being treated properly don't lose your temper, don't sulk, and don't spend your whole life taking it out on your friends and your family. You have to address it at work. Nothing yeah. is more boring than the person who really ought to have handed in their notice and just spends their whole life moaning to their wife, their husband, their best friends about what their bloody job is. You know, don't do it. If you don't like what you're doing, you will become very boring to everybody else. Change your job, change yes. your job. Yes, having recently been that person, I can endorse that sentiment. <laughs> Well, we've all done that. We've all spent time listening to someone and thinking, why don't they just stop doing this job if it's making them so unhappy? And I know that's, a, you know, I know particularly the current climate, that's easier said than done. But, you know, don't life's very short, really. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And what would the Alexander Macmillan advice be? If Could we have a little book of the wisdom of Alexander Macmillan? <laughs> I think he's going, I mean, I am absolutely immersed in his life in the 1860s. And it is that the decade of the 1860s is the absolute pivotal decade from the, for, the, for the business. It completely transforms. It looks utterly different in 1870 than it did in 1860. In 1871, his first wife dies and he rapidly remarries a much younger woman. And I think he starts going abroad on holidays. And I think his life changes. I think the mm. 1870s Alexander is going to have had a, a younger woman saying to him, you're killing yourself. It's not worth it. You've got, you know, you've got sons coming into the business. Let George take the strain. We're going to France for a month, Alexander, and you're coming too. I mean, I think his life is going to change in the 1870s. Mm. Interesting. Um, so I'd be interested. So I'm, I'll ask me again when I know what he's writing to people in the 70s, because in the 60s, he's saying, get your head down, really got to work, you know, put, start another book, don't let the grass grow under your feet, boom, 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 boom. He's at it all the time. I think he's going to have a very different attitude in 10 years' time. A lot of writers seem to have a decade or a 15-year period where 
they kind of really do most of their great work. It, mm. That seems to be like that for him, but in a business sense, then you're saying yes. the 60s, that was his time, and then it cooled yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, well, after, but with, a bu- with a publishing house in particular, I think, once you've built up a critical mass, it's not so difficult to run because all good authors are going to come to you and you can be selective and you can take a Thomas Hardy manuscript and you can take a Kipling manuscript and a Henry, you know, they're going to come to you. Whereas in the 1860s, he's really scrabbling around what's going to be good. And he creates things like the Golden Treasury series or the Clarendon Press textbooks with Oxford University. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is creating things because he hasn't got a Thomas Hardy or a Henry James. I mean, he's got Charles Kingsley, who's becoming increasingly racist and unpleasant. You know, I mean, he's, <laughs> but by the 1870s, by the 1870s, the business is, you know, there's a magazine that comes out every month that has regular subscriptions. And now there's Nature is going to come out every month and, and be written for by Huxley. And, and he's got, um, he can choose who he publishes. Mm. So I think by the 1870s, the business runs much better even when he's on holiday. Whereas in the 1860s, he just needs to be there every day and he needs to read every manuscript and he needs to look at every proof and he's changing the colour of the bindings. I mean, he he is in it all over it. And I think it would have killed him and it killed his wife, possibly. And I think in the 1870s, it's easier for him to step back. And then he starts having two son, a son and a nephew in the business. And then he has three nephews yeah. in the business. You know, I mean, it just moves on and he's lucky that the next generation um of the one two three five boys three of them stay in the business and are still in the business in their 70s and 80s and they all die within a couple of months of each other in 1936 bang 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 three but they were all there three brothers um so he's lucky in that there is at least two generations of macmillan that know how to run a publishing company not not everyone gets that do they some people can't even get some no. Oh, God, no. What did you learn about talent spotting when you were at Arthur Anderson? Um, that it's that one of the best things you can have in a business career is instinct about people. Um, that I could all I think I could always tell within five minutes of an interview starting whether I ought to hire this person or not. Um, it's a bit like house hunting. You know, it all looks lovely on paper. And then sometimes you get to the gate and you think, I'm not even going to look at this house. I, <laughs> I'm not, I can't imagine living in this house. You know, why have I come? And I think that I think I had really good instinct for people spotting. And I was good at bringing people on, um, particularly women. I mean, there are a couple of women around who say nice things to me about, you know, I learned a lot from you, Sarah. So what were the signals, the good and the bad signals? What, what set your instincts off? Uh, genuine intelligence, not just, um, you know, a, a spark in the eye, literally, um, and, a, and a bit of a sense of humour. Mm-hmm. Um, so not just they've, you know, learnt it all by rote. I wasn't ever interested in the people who told me they'd been reading the Financial Times since they were 12. I was interested in someone who'd tell me something interesting they'd seen on the back of a lorry coming into the interview. I mean, that was a better mm-hmm. sign for me of, of genuine interest. And... I always used to say when I was teaching other people to interview and hire as well, if you don't think, um, if this new person's going to start on Monday morning, am I going to really look forward to seeing them? Or am I thinking, you know, I hope this is going to be all right. Then you've already made your decision. You want that person to be someone you want to work with on a Monday morning, you Mm -hmm. know, 
mm-hmm. when it's pouring with rain and you've got a hangover, you know. So pick pick people who you are going to get on with and who are as bright as you are or brighter if you can find them. Let's say I was going to plant you into um, the offices of some big consultancy, PwC or, or, or EY or someone. And um, your job is to talent spot some potential late bloomers. They don't have to want to write a book or be Victorianist. Right. They just have to right. be some other Sarahs who, who right. have this in them, but they're not talking about it. And, you know, uh, mm. we don't know what it is. How are you going to go about looking for these people? And what, when will your instincts sort of prick up and say, you know, I'm going to get to know her. She seems like there's, some, there's something in the background there. I think it's the, um, you're going to see that person thinking outside the box. So in a room of people where everyone said something around the table, they've said the most interesting thing that wasn't what anyone else had said. And it might have been a, a small point that they'd made, but it was just different. Their brains weren't working. They weren't doing group speak because they may not have been listening to the group speak or they might have thought it was very dull. But this was the thing that had been interesting them about this problem. And I, I know that's a thing. I also think I would be looking for the person who'd done something interesting at the weekend or, you know, was going to the theatre that night or just the show that their brain was was not completely sucked into the job. That, you know, in fact, they were probably more looking like, you know, hoping they were going to get to the National Theatre that night than worrying about anything else that was going on. It's that feeling that you have a life outside work. And Mm -hmm. for lots of people, there is no life outside work. And I feel so sorry for them when they give up because what are they going to do with their lives whereas I always knew that there were 50 things if I'd had if I'd had to stop working tomorrow I wouldn't have been bored for a second you know <laughs> there were 50 things I wanted to do and I'm always feel sorry for people to say oh I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have this job yeah really you know yeah but I well, think how do you how do you spot them when that's not coming out I think you are gonna spot them because they are gonna ha- say something that's a different take from everyone else yeah, no, that's interesting. If you're not going to sort of have the chance to see them pull a book of poetry out of the briefcase or whatever, you can. Yeah. Act, you're saying there are signals in the meeting. Yeah, it, it comes back to divergence almost. They're not. It does. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, How many people know, do you think you met like that in your career? <laughs> I tell you why I'm asking. I have a, I, I mean, I, I feel like we have no idea how many late bloomers there could be out there. Yeah. But my suspicion is there are a lot of people who could be in the right circumstances, you know, given the right mm. conditions or whatever. But we just don't know. No. I don't know. I, do, I mean, I don't think many. Um, I, can't, I can't think of people. There were people who did surprisingly well um, after I'd worked with them, went off and did other business things um, and have done very well. And I think, well, I wonder what they might do next. Mm. Um, Were they the ones saying the, you know, the out of the box stuff in the meeting or are there other indicators yeah. of those? I mean, there's a, there's a girl in particular I'm thinking about who worked for me in Leeds who um, could have gone down a very boring banking corporate route. Actually, she's now running a really interesting small business. Um, and she always, I mean, she used to get teased and laughed at because she would sometimes say such off the wall things. It used to make her look a bit stupid sometimes. But I always used to be interested in what she'd said because mm. there was something going on there. Um, so I would think about her. I'm trying to think, I mean, so later life when I've been 
around NHS boards. There are people there who I think could easily spring off and do something completely different because working for the NHS is so completely absorbing of your life, your energy um, and your compassion. But some of them are very interesting people. They wouldn't be doing that job otherwise. Finally, give us a recommendation for one really good Victorian novel that we might not have read. Okay, um, I'm going to say, apart from I've already told you that I love uh, The Way We Live Now and I love Middlemarch, which I think are the two yes. absolute novels. But the one that I read last year, which I'd never heard of and loved, uh, it's by Mrs. Oliphant and it's called Hester. And it was written, I think, in the 1880s. And it's set in a small town, but it's about a woman who saves the family bank from going bankrupt. Mm. Um, her father has uh, overextended the bank and run off. And a bit like um, It's a Wonderful Life, there's going to be a run on the bank. But Hester um, goes into the office I and mean, it's a small town. And the fact that she's there, she saves the bank and effectively runs it. And then the book starts as the next generation are coming through and what's going to happen and will she have to do it again? Um, it's a really good book. Yeah, that sounds Hester great. Yeah. I'm going to read that. Well, Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you, Henry. It's been very enjoyable.